0: Welcome to the Hyperguy Motivational Podcast. Thank you so much for being here with me today. I have an amazing story of redemption and a story of forgiveness between two men, Gunnar Johnson and Christian Branscombe. Uh, Gunnar Johnson is currently the, the housing coordinator for Project Rebound at Sacramento State. And Christian owns his own consulting business, Bare Bones Coaching, which we'll get into at the end. Thank you both for being
1: here. Thanks for having us.
0: Yeah, I'm really excited because I know you've been featured on on nationally, and your story has gotten a lot of of attention, and um, amazing stories because both of you have been in prison for lengthy terms and really, really have turned your life around. I mean, you're both inspiration to me, and that's why I have you on the podcast, (laughs) so I just really appreciate both of you taking the time today to be with me so i'm gonna go ahead and gunner if you could just kind of give me a little bit of story about yourself and then we'll get into you know how you and christian you guys it was interesting because you and christian were kind of on opposite sides of the world for a while and in, in terms of you know he shot you and then and then somehow you guys have become really great friends and so it, it's it's, a, it's an amazing story and when i was watching it i mean for many people it almost brings people to tears. And it really does speak to the, the power of people coming together and working through the issues. And can you get into the story a little bit? Gunna?
1: Yeah. So, um, just to kind of rewind to the event, you know, I was a young kid on my own at a young age. My parents kicked me out. I became very resourceful and um, a, a good pot dealer. You know, I grew and sold marijuana back when it was illegal, and made pretty good money doing that. Um, I knew Christian. He was in our circle of friends and and his co-defendant, Joshua was a really good friend of mine. And um, what long story short is they robbed me in December 20th of 1994. They'd come by earlier that evening and um, came to my house and my friend Patrick Klein was there and, and he came over, he'd actually just gotten back from a trip into Europe. Um, I, we drank some beer and smoked a pot and I told him if he didn't feel like driving, he could sleep on my couch. And, um, you know, in the middle of the night, Christian and Joshua came into the house, and and I was shot twice, um, and Patrick was shot twice and died. Um, So the event itself, of course, was really traumatic. Um, I have a bullet in my neck. I was introduced to opiates while recovering from the gunshot wounds. It uh, led ultimately to a heroin addiction a few years later, Um, and a lot of, I think, that addiction was not just for my physical wounds. It was a lot of the psychological wounds. The fact that I was selling pot and my friend was killed weighed heavy on me. That survivor's guilt was really hard for me to bear. And I, I used, you know, alcohol and drugs really to cope with that. So, um, obviously after the trial, I went to the trial, participated. I was a surviving victim witness. Christian was um, convicted and his co-defendant were convicted of robbery, uh, murder, and special circumstances, which is mandatory life without the possibility of parole or death by incarceration. And at the time, I was gung- ho, you know, I wish I, I you know i I wanted the death penalty. I was so mad at the at that moment, just trapped in anger, and that anger stuck with me. um eventually, I started committing very similar offenses to what Christian and Joshua did, but not like it was usually to get somebody back that had robbed a friend of mine or something like that. And it was a way for me to kind of get that powerless feeling back. I would kick indoors, I had a full body armor, a Kevlar helmet, and I was like suiting up and doing collection, not collection. Well, yeah, basically collections. So it was really a crazy lifestyle. And eventually um, I ended up in federal prison under a three strikes law called the armed Career criminal act. Uh, My sentence in federal custody was 260 months. And I had 120 months state sentence for an armed robbery assault where a guy was shot in the leg during a home invasion robbery, which was really similar to what happened to me. So knowing full well how that crime you know impacted my family in such a negative way impacted patrick's family in such a negative way i was capable five years later of committing very similar harm um, because i hadn't dealt with the trauma that i had gone through and and so long story short i I end up in prison initially i was pissed off at the world it's everybody's fault my parents fault for kicking me out christian's fault for me being on, on drugs Um, and I ended up getting sober in 2006. I was going to AA meetings inside the prison I was at, not to get sober. It was because East and West Yard were separated, and that's where they would let us program together, and we actually passed contraband in the meetings, but I had a friend that was dying of lung cancer, and um, I would go visit him, and he would sneak me some of his OxyContin, and I remember going to visit him one time. He didn't send me some meds, and I got really mad at him, and um, I came back to my cell after that, and, and, Had kind of an aha moment where I thought, man, what kind of uh, person am I to get mad at a friend who's on his deathbed because he didn't send me some meds that are making the last few months of his life, you know, comfortable. And um, I made a decision to get sober. I got a sponsor, started working the steps. And I don't know if anybody's familiar with the steps. You go through this process called a resentment list. And at the top of that list is Josh Richter and Christian Branscombe. And my sponsor told me I had to pray for them. And I thought this is an absurd notion. These guys broke into my house, killed my friend, and shot me. I have every right to be angry. And he quoted something out of A's literature that is uh, goes like this justifiable anger is the dubious luxury of better men. Meaning, if I didn't, as a recovering alcoholic, didn't address my anger, I would eventually get loaded over it. So um, I started to get on my knees and actually pray for Christian and Josh in the morning and Um, I remember it kind of being a little disingenuous, I throw it in a prayer. And, you know, I I wasn't really feeling it initially. But then I started to think, you know, I was doing a very long sentence, but they were doing forever. At the age of 19, Christian was sentenced to die in prison, Joshua at the age of 20, the same thing. And I started to think and kind of gain a little empathy, like, what's their life like, and eventually got to a place where I felt, you know, that I had forgiven them. So fast forward to 2017, I actually won my appeal. My release date was July last year. I got out about five years early and I got out and um, I reached out to Christian and to Josh and just let them know that I forgive them and I hope they find peace and a sense of purpose. And and in that, I just kind of let it go and didn't think anything of it. My first semester on campus, I was taking a restorative justice uh, class with Dr. Wazi at Sacramento State. And during that class, I received a 48 page or 38 page amends letter from Christian that really gave me some insight into his life, you know, circumstances that he went through as a child, you know, trauma that he had experienced. And the way he used framed it, it wasn't like he was using this as an excuse. It was like context. He owned 100 percent what he had done. And I could see the remorse was really genuine. Um, And so from that, I thought, okay, we're going to find some kind of healing through a written correspondence back and forth. And then um, Javier Starring, who works with Healing Dialogue in Action, contacted me and asked if I'd actually be willing to sit in circle with Christian and do a victim-offender dialogue, which is a restorative justice, you know, circle process. And I had actually been learning about it in Dr. Watsi's class, so I was familiar. And I readily agreed. And and kind of fast forward from there, um, the the documentary was made. And uh, postscript, it's been remarkable. So one of the things that I got from that, and maybe. Christian, if you want to just go through the lead up and kind of catch up to where I'm at, we can talk about our experience at the VOD.
0: Yeah, yeah. Hey, Christian, can you talk a little bit also about? And we're going to get back on Gunner. I want to, I want to like let when Christian gives us start. I want to ask you both about how prison changed you and what kind of insight it gave you. And I'm sure you went through a process of at first, typically it's not the best experience in the world, but your process and how it changed you. But so, Christian. What was your part in this leading up to the shooting? And how did you feel afterwards? Um,
2: You know, if if, to be candid afterwards, I was the person that had committed the crime in that moment. You know, I know I had done something wrong, but I believed in what I had done. I, I think I felt a deep sense of remorse, but was also conflicted with my shame ethics, which told me that this was the right thing to do. So it was it was kind of like uh, it was a seed inside of me that knew that I had done something wrong and I couldn't get away from that. At the same time, I believed that violence was a cure for the pain that I had inside. So. It took me a while to sort that out, but there was always this knowing that it, you know, Gunner didn't deserve that and Patrick obviously didn't deserve that either. You know, so it took a lot of time for me to be able to, you know, feel my pain and then relate to the pain I'd caused others. So I think it it's a process that needs to happen for sincere remorse. And it took me to maturing, having time to be reflective and then obviously owning my own. You know life and then being able to relate to what i had done to them i think um ultimately when i committed this crime uh i was wrapped up in exactly what i was just describing which is these shame ethics and i got brought up where i was neglected very heavily by my mother i was put into abusive situations because she didn't want to be a parent and didn't really care about what was going on and as a result of that, I was I was groomed and with a girl that I had a crush on at my age at eight, eight to 10. I honestly don't know the exact I just know reflecting back it was been eight and 10 years old. We were groomed and molested by a neighborhood boy that was about 17 years old. And it was the first time in my life that I had found acceptance. I didn't understand sex or these things were wrong. I didn't. All I knew is that finally somebody saw me and that I wasn't alone in the world anymore. Right. So I had these two people that I could engage with that wanted to see me. And it was under the context of, you know, this pedophilic, you know, interaction. Uh, at some point, he tried to sodomize me and I couldn't do it. I was too small of a child and it was painful. And I cried. It was the first time I experienced violence. He, he slapped me around he kicked me out of the room. And he says, look, you know, I don't ever want to see you again. And if I do, I'll kill you. You know, like that's that's the context of how he responded to me having pain. So having not dealt with this before and feeling isolated and not knowing what to do i really felt like i was the one that had screwed up i was the person that that had failed you know i didn't live up to you know these people finally accepted me and i was out you know i'd done something wrong and i couldn't share it with anybody uh and eventually i tried to touch my parents that way thinking maybe that would allow them to love me you know like they would come to me and and support me and, uh, of course, that brought the light, like, where where did you learn this or where did this come from? And when I told them, the the kid was arrested for a couple months and then he came back home and terrorized me. You know, like he would anytime he saw me in the neighborhood, he'd beat me up. He'd, you know, embarrass me in front of his friends and tell me that he was going to come kill me in the middle of the night. And in that process, I really still didn't have <laughs> any support from my parents, they were just like, stay inside because they were gone all day, you know? So it was like, I was a home alone having to deal with this. So my heroes started becoming people that I related to, you know, like Michael Myers and Friday, you know, Jason from Friday the 13th and, you know, Commando and like all the Rambo and all of these things where these people become vigilantes to solve this problem of, of somebody that is terrorizing the neighborhood or other people and that this is the right response to, to harm them, right? So this kind of becomes my, they become my heroes. Those become who I admire. And my brother ends up seeing me after I get beat up one time on the side of the house. And he he goes down the street and, and challenges the whole group of guys that were uh, essentially just socially torturing me. And I saw them back down and cower down. And two things happened in that moment was that I felt like, I don't want to say loved for the first time, but I felt like this is what people do when they care about somebody else is they're aggressive to other people. And it was the first time that I felt like, okay, I had a victory because he was strong and, and this is what strong people do, you know? And a lot of times we talk about in this work that shame ethics are defined by your weakest moment, not true strength. So if you punch me in the face and I hit the ground, I know two things in that moment. I'm weak and you're strong. And if I don't want to feel weak, I'm going to be like you. I'm going to adopt what you did to me as the ethos for what's going to cure my pain. So I actually learned the idea or the ethos of strength through my weakest moment, not understanding what true strength is. So I went forward in life with that ethos of of thinking that that vigilante mindset, protecting the people around me, kind of doing what I wish that my parents would have done for me, but more so, I was battling my insecurities and not knowing how to cope with how alone and how insecure I felt. So aggression was my everything. I sacrificed everything I really wanted for uh, that perception of fear. If somebody wasn't afraid of me, I didn't feel safe. So I lost real connections with people. I didn't have loving relationships. I didn't thrive at school. You know, like I didn't get to do anything I actually wanted to do because I gave, I sacrificed all of that for the feeling of safety. So around the time that Gunner and I are hanging around each other, and and my co-defendant Josh was a very close friend of his at the time. There's, uh, I'm going through my own downward spiral. My dad had died a couple of years earlier. I was feeling insecure with these relationships I was having with uh, women that that I didn't feel like I was really wanted. You know, so I was and I was at home with my mother, who was a big trigger for me. It was always trying to kick me out of the house and. It was there was a lot of dynamics going on there that were very that really brought me into a, uh, a place where I was really struggling with a narcissistic injury. You know, like I, I really couldn't see myself anymore. You know, I was really overwhelmed with life. And so I started projecting all of this stuff out. I started using drugs at this tree lot I was working at at night where I was guarding it. So I have a gun out there and I'm, I'm chasing, you know, phantoms through the trees in the evening. You know, like I'm trying to cope with this by using drugs. But what's really happening is all of this poison is seeping out of me. I almost attacked a guy in the parking lot because I thought he was was uh, molesting a child out, out there. He had a, like a mobile home that he was there with. And this kid would come in the middle of the night and I heard him crying. And, um, you know, like I was I was going to hurt somebody because I couldn't cope with my own pain. I was trying to, to, I thought if I finally killed this demon or attacked something that resembled what had hurt me, that I was somehow not going to feel this ugliness anymore, or that I would feel like I'd overcome it. I wasn't always running from it in my mind and my heart. So we had a very circumstantial situation happen where we were in the driveway um, and Gunner came in and he had pulled out his gun. And this was really triggering to me because he was close to Josh and I perceived this as an aggressive thing. And then I was like, Hey, where's all this shit coming from? And then Josh intimated to me, you know, like, Hey, this guy pulled a knife on me, you know, a few days before and like I owed him money and like, and it felt like this really, um, you know, I, I felt like I had to defend him, you know, like I was like, Oh, well, if this guy's pushing up on you. Well, let's defend you. You know, like this is what somebody that cares about somebody else does. And because of my shame like this, I didn't even consider Patrick or, or Gunner or any like them as people. They just became something that I was opposed to. And I was I was going to harm them because that's what I thought was the right thing to do at the time. Uh, and in that process, we we planned it out a couple of days and then and, and carried it out completely unjustly, you know, and in this. And it's so it's so crazy to me now when I look back and I think about like anybody could have been in that house. And that night they would have been hurt. Like I had no true sense of justice. I had no true understanding of like how undeserving people were of this type of an action. Like, and just how all pervasive this is in the sense that it, it hits every aspect of the community. Not. I just thought we were having an exchange between us. I didn't see the ripple effect of how this would linger all the way to this day. You know, like how people still can't cope with this trauma in a lot of ways. And that that's what Gunnar and I work to do is try to share our experience, hoping that that will help them mitigate their pain in some way. So by the time we go to court, honestly, one of the biggest moments that I have of regret is when they had the sentencing hearing. I felt (laughs) like I was the survivor. You know, I felt like I was the victim and I had a lot of confusing information coming at me. The officers had pulled me and Josh off to the side inside of the the county jail and lined up probably 20, 30 officers. And they all came down and shook our hand. And and I'm like, what's happening right now? And they're like, you know, if you had done what you did with a badge on, you'd get a medal of honor. And so on one side I'm getting told, like, look, what you did is just and you're 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 a person of integrity. And then I go into a court and they're calling me the menace of society. And I don't understand what's happening here. And you deserve the death penalty. So in that moment, I was very confused. You know, I didn't understand, you know, how I had done a wrong when we were playing this game. And, you know, at that point, I'd come out on top. And that's kind of my framework at that time. I really didn't have anything outside of that. I didn't understand the full impact or how wrong I was in the act. So I think that my coldness to Patrick's family, his sister got up on the stand and was trying to share her loss. And I was looking at me mugging her and just being this, you know, really hard faced person to her because I felt like I was the victim. And, uh, later when I would heal more and like, they actually stopped that part of the proceeding because they were like, there, there's no sense in continuing on with this. He, he doesn't have any remorse for what he's done. So, you know, going forward, I, you know, going to prison for life without, I go to one of the, the the hardest prisons of Salinas Valley, you know, for the first two three years. And, you know, and I was, I would say I was worse than it when I was out. I mean, mean, I'm in a volatile environment. We're fighting. It's like, you know, we, I just leaned into it. I was 21 years old and, you know, I'm going to die in prison. So let's go for it. You know? And I think, you know, about four or five years in, I just really realized like, Hey, this, (laughs) this isn't, this isn't what I am. I'm not, I'm not into this, you know, like this isn't who I want to be. Um, because no matter how hard I pushed, no matter how much I did, there was nothing that really took that feeling out of me. That was that ugliness and that sense of, um, you know, you, you can't do enough. It's like an addiction. You can't step out of that cycle, leaning into the cycle. So I got into Buddhism. I started studying. I got into my own education. They didn't have college programs at the time, but I would shadow people that could afford them. I started really looking into, like what it is to give back and, and to be a good person. And what could I do inside that would, you know, give to somebody else. And initially it had nothing to do with the survivors of my crime, but as I did more self-help and the more that I really looked at why I was angry and like where that came from, you know, and I, I ended up coming across this woman who was a survivor of violent crime through healing dialogue and action. And it was honestly just this earth shattering moment emotionally for me, because this person that was supposed to hate me and had every right to hate somebody like me, because her sister had been killed by her sister's boyfriend. You know, she was coming in to, to cope with her loss. And, and in that exchange, she said, you know, I came in here, I've gotten more concern and compassion for my loss than I have from any free person in the free world. You care more about what I'm going through than than anybody else. And this is helping me heal. And she says, you don't deserve to to have this inner narrative that you do of self-loathing and like be going forward and being a good person is enough. And I mean, I can't even tell you how much this like I was like an infant, you know, like I I just couldn't stop crying like it was it would come to me and come to me and come to me. And as I would share it with other people, I just it was just like I was learning how to feel for the first time in my life. I just had been so divorced from any worth or sense of interconnection my whole life that it was truly shattering for me. And from that exchange, I realized that there is something that can be given back and forth between the person you've harmed and the, and the person who committed the act. And through talking to her, I got inspired to reach out to Gunnar, but I built a class that was about a year and a half long that was focused on what is immense, how can we present it? And what does this mean? What is the offer that you're giving to the person that you've harmed? What do they need to heal in this situation? And so it was a very long, intense course that, you know, brought in a lot of uh, professionals in academia to see it because it was very effective and profound. And, and a lot of guys would come in initially and be like, I don't have the remorse you're talking about. And as they started to feel their pain, they realized how much pain they had inflicted on other people. And so it, it became a, a pretty straightforward process that I based my coaching on now that revolves around this idea that if you can't feel your pain, you can't relate to anybody else's, you lose your humanity. So we went through that and I wrote a, a 38 page document that was all about what I felt was an offer of amends, owning how I came to do these decisions, showing that I faced my greatest fears to reveal this aspect of my life, saying, you know, my molestation, how I felt, how powerless I was and how I made these decisions because I wasn't okay with myself and that he didn't deserve what I had done. And so going through that, it was a, it was a life-changing experience. It felt very, um, cathartic to own it and to, and and I knew that at some point I needed to give this to him. So I reach out to my sister and I'm like, Hey, you know, I, I don't know how I'm going to reach Gunner because it's against the law for me to, to reach out to him directly, but we have to find a way because I really want him to get this. And she happens to go, well, you know, I didn't tell you this couple of years ago or a year ago, because I didn't think you would want to know, but he actually reached out and offered his condolences to you. And I was like, what, you know, like you didn't tell me this. Like I had no idea that he had reached out to me, you know? So, this started a whole new exchange between us where, you know, there was, there was a couple bumps in the road, like miscommunications. And like, there was a lot of like open nerves and, you know, like what's happening here. But there was always this sincerity on our part to really, uh, own what had happened. And, and for me to, to offer this, this amends, you know? And so we got the chance with CNN. And then from there, uh, you know, it really turned into this really amazing process of where Gunnar was so supportive of me coming home. I, when I went to board, I think he fought harder for me coming home than I did, you know, and that same day he went to a legislation, uh, uh, I don't know if it was legislation or a group, of, a body of people that were legislators uh, from the governor's office, the DA's office, all these people and just shared the redemption project with them and what he had done that same day at the board hearing for a four or five hours, you know, and in and, and they invested like two or three million dollars in restorative justice for the first time in California history, you know. So like this from the very moment that that we started supporting each other, you know, this relationship has been dynamic and helped other people invest in, you know, healing and well being for other people. And so it's been a it's been a really intense journey.
0: I guess the question I have for both of you is, um, Gunner, was it when you first initially met Christian, I mean, were, were both of you, I mean, as a victim, how nervous were you to meet him for the first time? I mean, and, and, and did any part of you struggle with letting go of the pain that he caused? Because he took he, the person, that he, the life he took was a good friend of yours. And then how did you process that? Did you process that before you went to prison, after you went to prison or after you got out?
1: So let's start from the beginning. Um, I think it was kind of um, it was nerve wracking. It was my first time going back into prison to meet with Christian. And a little bit of the struggle was like Christian hinted at it. There was some miscommunication. So my memory of the event and Christian memory of the event are different. And when he wrote me a, a men's letter, I thought when he was talking about, um, you know, isn't it amazing that we're both still alive because you had your gun? I thought he was using his co-defendant's defense argument, you know, and trying to kind of get a, a self-defense argument in the back door for an appeal or something. And I'm like, you know, is he gonna lie to me, like I, you know, lie to my face about this? And and when he explained what happened, that it was premeditated murder, that that was their intent that I tried to defend myself, which I had every right to do, I, even if um, I have no memory of it still to this day. But um, if I did that, that that was just on impulse. But so that cleared that up. The, the apprehension I had going in um, wasn't very, I mean, there wasn't much. It was going back into a prison. I'd done a lot of preparation in my restorative justice class. I sat down with the warden um, when I first went to Lancaster, and she was like kind of feeling me out like, hey, are you guys going to, be okay is that door going to crack and are you guys going to be you know battling like you know they i think expected and i said no i'm here to heal and what they did cut out of the redemption project is when christian first walked out i got up and i hugged him and i told him we're here to heal they made it sound a lot more adversarial than it really was we had both been doing this work for a while on ourselves with the intention of healing and so i think there wasn't much apprehension there was a lot of preparation and the event was uh, a very healing process and i and did Gunner, that all and, and if
0: you if, gotta i can you go over i don't think people understand and we really you didn't go into it specifically mm-hmm. but i think you need to i mean you had serious injuries these are significant you the you know the gunshots caused significant physical impairment for you that that you're still dealing with so it wasn't i mean I mean I, I can you articulate I mean I don't think I mean it, you know when someone says they get shot I think it kind of goes in their mind it passes through really quickly and I don't think if you can explain how significant these injuries were and and not only the physical scars the emotional scars you're talking about but what kind of physical scars do you have and how you got over that
1: Yeah so I still have a bullet lodged in my neck in between my third and fourth cervical vertebrae so I was shot in the face it broke my jaw the bullet passed through the back of my throat nicked an artery in my neck and came to rest um in between c3 and four and i was shot through my right shoulder and it clear it was a clean through and through it just kind of ate up a bunch of flesh and went through the wall and um it really i mean that injury didn't even hurt that much i didn't i was in shock but this uh to explain it it's almost like the the bone surrounding the root uh, of my molar exploded like a hand grenade and, and I had fragments of bone throughout the back of my throat and my tongue. So an oral surgeon had to come and pull all that out. I'm missing a big chunk of my mandible. Um, and then they did a uh, vascular surgeon had to repair an artery in my neck. Um, just a couple of months ago, I had a min- minor stroke. And they think it was a little bit of plaque building up where that vascular surgeon had fixed my artery. I have really good cholesterol and everything, even though I'm getting older. But they think a little piece might have came loose from that and, and caused a, a, a blockage in, in my brain. But um, So there's lasting impact, right? Um, It's been almost 30 years. The pain isn't that severe every once in a while. My neck hurts, but it's not anything I can't deal with. What was more significant than the physical injuries, though, was the psychological injuries. The fact that my friend was staying at my house, crashed on my couch because I invited him, was shot and killed because I was selling drugs. So I took a lot of ownership for the crime and what christian really emphasized when he came to that vod is like none of that is yours to, to bear none of that is your burden to bear that is mine and um so that was really uh, a weight off my shoulder and also i didn't want christian to bear that because what i found in our conversation and i think it's lost in that 20 minute you know clip of it in the cnn thing is christian um, the work he did on himself he is a, a really remarkable human being that started investing in the well-being of others in prison, and for those of us that work in that space in prison, it's a rare individual that does that—that that makes that turn where they change their value system to the point um, where they really are trying to help others. Like their mission in life is to, you know, better themselves and also be there for other people to help them on their own healing journey, and that's what Christian did. And so I saw his humanity in in that conversation and and saw his potential. And I remember the last um, question, they're like, any closing thoughts? And I don't know if I can cuss on this thing, but I said, yeah, let's get this guy the fuck out of here. Like, that was my closing (laughs) thoughts. And then four months later, he gets, uh, Governor Brown commutes him. And I remember Victim Services calling me. I was leaving the gym and they called me and said, you know, we're going to, Governor Brown's going to announce tomorrow Christian's commutation. And I said, awesome. How can I support him? And that was not the response Victim Services expected. Um so I think a lot of that process for me occurred in prison. And it took a while. Like Christian, mm-hmm. I went to prison initially. I was hell bent for destruction. I was, you know, just pissed off at the world. I was using drugs. Um, eventually I got to a place where I saw other people that were, you know, had faith in God and that were doing the work and were sober and they were what we call happy, joyous and free. They weren't caught up in the mix and and you know, the drama on the yard. And then ultimately was when I had that self-reflection, like when I realized when I use drugs, I'm manipulative, I'm selfish, I'm kind of a jerk. And that's not the person I ever aspired to be. And so that's kind of my, you know, pivotal moment in 2006 when I tried to change course in my life.
0: Yeah. You know, you know, we talked about this before we started that um, that many times when I when I was watching this special and doing kind of the research on both of you. I heard two like very different perspectives of how you both saw each other. and I think it's amazing that you both came to a place where you needed to forgive one another. And you kind of both started to figure out that maybe you weren't who you thought you were back then. <laughs> so yeah. Maybe you were different people than what you really thought you were. And I think we talked about that. Again, I brought this up in the other podcast, that mirror analogy between when you get up in the morning, you look in the mirror and this wonderful professor, Professor Cohen talks about that, is you go and look in the mirror, you're only seeing a small part of yourself. There's a lot of parts of us that, that other people perceive and see, so it might be different. And I think it's amazing how both of you, and I, and I know this is difficult, and I just want both of you to touch on this a little bit is, and then we'll go into some other things, but how did you get, how did other people in prison perceive this change and I want to give context to this. Both of you are big muscular dudes that work out. So if someone were to see you on the street, so for those people that are listening on the podcast, uh, Christian and Gunnar, uh, they hit the gym obviously a lot. <laughs> so they're pretty, impre- pretty, pretty sizable, healthy individuals. Um, how did people inside accept this change that you were making? And what put you in that place? You kind of talked about it a little bit, but... This is pretty transformative. What was that process like for, for both of you? Either of you can answer.
1: Well, I'll start really quickly. I mean, it, it happened for me in our AA community, and we had a solid group. And I think that was well-respected. I mean, you would get these, th- these comments like, oh, you're a quitter, right? Yeah, I'm quitting the cycle of you know, chaos and drugs and addiction. Um, another thing that I got a little pushback for, I was the law clerk for the last four years of my incarceration. And I did some work for the native uh, community. I, did, I helped uh, two guys get sentence reductions from appeals that I did. And then I helped with a lawsuit, a free exercise of religion, a First Amendment lawsuit um, that we they were taking sweat lodge and stuff from them or limiting sweat lodge. And we won. And the natives invited me to sweat lodge a couple of times. Like I actually had like a re- reoccurring invitation to go sweat with them. And I had some white guys come up to me. Um, not just for that. I actually helped a couple um, black guys get immediate release from custody from appeals that I had done. And they kind of pushed back on me. Like, why are you helping those guys? Because, you know, prison is deeply divided along racial lines. And I was really firm. I said, look, this it's an honor to do to be invited to Sweat Lodge. I perceive it an honor. Like if we have an issue with it, you know, we can we can go to the cell and hash it out. And and they that's you know, that's how they do it in there. And um, and I got that pass. Right. They They were fine with it. Um, and I just said the same thing with helping people with legal work. Like if anybody has in my mind, something that I can help them with, um, I was the head law clerk, I'm going to do the work I can to help them. And for anybody that knows prison lawyers, a lot of them, it's a hustle, right? They're making money. I never charged a dime for any of the work I did there. Um, I really helped people, uh, and, and did a lot of research if I thought I had a way to help them get out or get a sentence reduction or something, I did the work. And, um, and I was fortunate to have a lot of family support, so I didn't need a, a prison hustle. Um, but yeah, for me, it was just, I got, a, a, people saw that I was doing the right thing. I wasn't faking the funk. I think a lot of times if you're in there and you're kind of straddling both sides of the fence, like you got a foot in the game and you got a foot in religion or in the program, you know, then they're not going to give you the respect. But if they see it's genuine, the guys will give you space to grow. And and I've seen the culture change a little bit in prisons where they used to be, you know, they would you would have to run a mission when it's your turn. Right. Or whatever. And, and um, now it's changed a little bit. You see a lot more people because there is hope. There are people going home and there's a lot more of the OG, even uh, people sitting at the table that are like, hey, let's give these youngsters a chance. Let's not derail them. So this is going to be their life like it is ours. And um, so the culture is changing a little bit. And I think Christian can speak to that more than me because the California system is a little rougher than the um, federal system, which I was incarcerated in. Yeah,
2: I I was really lucky to be part of a pretty progressive crowd. There there was only 600 beds on our yard, which usually there's a thousand. And of those 600 beds, 400 of them were LWAP prisoners. So. We kind of had, you know, we'd been there for a long time. We were very progressive in that we weren't trying to embrace violence. You know, of course, we're in prison. It happens on occasion. But, oh, the prison politics wrapped around that really allowed you to kind of decompress a little bit more than on a regular yard. And it felt, um, you know, it felt like I had a lot more leniency to, to have my own experience than probably when I was at Salinas where it was really active. And there you're just trying to survive. You're not trying to focus on anything other than that. Um, But at this yard, I I was very fortunate to get over there when it started up in uh, 98. And it started becoming something that um, it's it was a place where I got to do art and I got to give back to the community. And I think these these gives really started leading me down a road where. I started asking myself real questions, you know, as I started to go like, well, how come I don't feel anything with this? Or why do people think this is right? Or, you know, it just started kind of like playing with those ideas. And I know for me, what, what it really took was me getting connected to my own experience. So uh, an art teacher there had inspired me to start really like going like, if you're going to express something, you have to have something to express, like what's your experience? What do you, what is something that's heartfelt for you? What do you, and I realized that my emotions were just not available. I was pretty much on or off. Either I was just angry or I had nothing to give, you know, like I was pretty much flat. You know, I didn't have any real range of emotion at the time. And so as I started kind of looking into this and exploring it, you know, I remember there was a time where I got emotional, where I'd written a letter from my eight-year-old self to my mother. And when I read it in the group, I, I, I got choked up, you know. And this made people very uncomfortable, you know, like having open emotions, This, even on this progressive yard, like this was, you know, was frowned upon. But at that point, I felt so good finally feeling something, something real inside of me that I just didn't care anymore. I was, I was done pretending. I was done with the anger. I just was done with it. I was like, I will do whatever it takes to get this out of my chest, you know, this, this animosity and, I mean, my head would just spin with negativity, you know. And so when I really got honest with myself about that and started trying to find the answers to where this came from, that journey led me to processing all of the pain that I experienced as a kid. And once that was unlocked for me, and I mean, there was a lot of tears and there was a lot of open, you know, uh, shame is something that can be consuming. You know, when you think that somebody else is never going to accept you because of something you felt or dealt with. It's it's very overwhelming, but that's the actual key to unlocking your potential, because as long as you feel that way, as long as you feel unworthy or you don't have the courage to say, I can't change my life experiences. This is the way that it actually is. You're never really yourself. So by doing that, it was the most courageous thing that I did. And earlier I brought up the notion of shame ethics, where most of my life when I was a kid, I thought that being strong was being aggressive because that's what made me feel weak when I was a kid. When I went through these processes, I realized that strength was compassion, thoughtfulness, introspection, being vulnerable. Like th- it took so much more strength to do those things than it did to go out and put a knife on my hand or do something. It was it, it was it, it literally challenged every part of me to it took everything I had to achieve those acts. So those became my badge of honor. That became the thing that inspired me and, and pushed me forward. And then as a community, I think there were some people that just couldn't handle it, you know, and I really just stepped all the way out of all the criminal thinking, I was just like, you know what, I, I don't care about prison politics, I want to be a good guy, and I used to tell them all the time, like the worst thing I ever did in here was grow up, because now I don't believe in this place, I don't believe in this things that go on in here, so it was very conflicting, you know, like there was a lot of times where I had to hold my ground when people didn't understand, and it was okay, it was okay. I was like, you know, I get it. You don't get it, (laughs) but I'm not doing that. So, you know, this is the way we're going to play it out. So luckily I was in a place where I could hold my ground with that when it was time. And it wasn't such a rough yard to where I just got ate up by a mob of people. There was only a few people that were really stuck in that vein there. So like it was, it was, it was kind of a a rocky situation sometimes depending on what I was holding my ground on. But for the most part, we, we really had a strong group of people trying to give back trying to support each other's growth and most importantly what could we offer what could we give back and i think that that's the first sign of real transformation in somebody when i'm working with them as a coach is when they get that inclination like but how could i help somebody else that notion doesn't come from somebody that's full of shame or defensive or thinks they're alone in life you know they don't they don't even consider the other person's experience so christian uh, let me ask
0: let me ask you guys both this question um both of you have said amazing things. I can be on here for three hours with you guys. Mm-hmm. Easy. Um, I just <laughs> uh, go have a meal together and talk about stuff. Um, what advice do you give people in prison or are involved in criminal activity on the outside or just involved in activities that they shouldn't be that necessarily are not they're counterproductive to, to their well-being? Mm-hmm. What advice do you give to somebody to try to move them in a more positive direction or how do you deal with something like that?
2: I don't, I don't ever give people advice. I've learned that over the years, but I will ask questions. I will ask questions and, and see if that deepens their understanding of themselves. Right. So I might ask them like, okay, you did this thing. What did you want out of it? Did you get that out of it? What was your intention going into this? Like, and really just kind of like do a, a base level check. Like, what do you want when you act like this? Well, I think I'm going to get this. Did you get that? no okay so now you're going to do it more next time right thinking that that's going to give you more he's like yeah i'll just go harder okay so how many times have you done that and was it successful you know and then you you just follow those leads where people i believe in the i believe that everybody has the ability to heal or be whole and the only time that we're not is when we're not self-aware when we're not connected to ourselves so i just i trust that they have that capacity and I call them to it. I just ask questions that hopefully get them curious about their own experience.
1: Yeah, and you know the little bit of the work I do, Martin, with um, reentry and um, a big emphasis I always try to place is education, opening up doors of opportunity. Like we know the numbers as far as recidivism you get a two-year degree it goes from 50 percent to 15 you get a four-year degree it's four percent you get a grad degree it's non-existent and i've worked at project rebound for almost six years and seen like the transformative power of education firsthand and working at insight garden programs supporting people coming home it usually if if they go in that track they're going to be it launches their life in a different direction Um, And that really provides a way for people to get out of the criminal lifestyle and open up different doors of opportunity. But it's hard. I mean, if you come home and you haven't done the work, you're set up to fail. You know, you're going to go right back to what you know. And if you don't have a supportive network of people to kind of guide you and connect you with resources, it's hard. And I know, I mean, you work at DAPO, DAPO isn't what it was five, 10 years ago. It is a great resource for people when they come home, but there's still that kind of adversarial uh, relationship that people feel when they come home. So they don't really ask their agents for the support that they could probably provide if they started that relationship. Right. A lot of, I've seen the culture shift. I mean, it's not hundred percent, right. Where it should be, but it's changed. And, and so even getting rid of that adversarial mentality, like it's us versus them and realizing like, if you go to these pack meetings and, and if you ask your agent for uh, help and, and are really transparent, you're going to get the help you need. It's about kind of uh, being able and get to a place where you're vulnerable and, and dropping that, that, that us versus them mentality. And it's hard, man. It, it really is hard. It's, it's hard to get through to people. But like Christian said, if you have an honest dialogue with somebody and ask them like, it, where's this getting you? If you're going in and out, obviously it's not working for you. Let's try something different. And there's other opportunities, there's options. I mean, vocational training to get a career based job. My, my thing is really trying to help people have quality of life, just staying out of prison. You know, recidivism is a poor measure of success. If somebody's staying out of prison, but they're not living a good, you know, they're struggling day to day, that's not a good measure. But if they're going into vocational training, they're getting a union job, making 40, 50 bucks an hour, they're doing all right. If they're going to education and they're getting a living wage job and feeling like they have a sense of purpose, they're doing all right. So that's what I, I want to really help people find is, a, you know, a pathway to a better life when they come home.
0: Well, you know, it's funny you say it because I think so many people, well, you just said, um, unfortunately, we measure, we just use the, the measurement tool of recidivism. And it kind of doesn't give a really good, Um, it's not really based in reality. I mean, because like you said, um, it's a struggle when you do everything perfect in life, it's a struggle. (laughs) But when you have other barriers up, like, like, you know, you're talking about class issues and race issues and a bunch of other issues that are going on. Um, Like you said, just being out and not going to jail, that shouldn't be a barometer of success. That shouldn't be a measure of how successful we are. I think it's important to provide people with the tools to be successful in the community, to build a life. And, and what I really love about your story as well, and I and I hear these stories all the time. I've had many, many people that never went back, but they're struggling. They're working two or three different jobs. And, and they're like, hey, fig, you know, I'm doing the best I can out here. But man, I mean, it was easier for me almost inside, it was almost easier for me because I'm struggling out here. I'm going sleeping on people's couches and stuff. And they're working really, really hard. So I, I always, when I listen to other podcasts or I listen to other people speak or politicians speak, they always say, oh, you just just work hard and you know what, you'll be all right. Well, I know a lot of people that work hard and they're not all right. I know a lot of people that work two, three different jobs to survive and they're working hard. So it's not so much sometimes it's a measure of how hard you're working. It's getting a, a, the opportunity for a job that will make you successful to be able to provide for yourself. And so, I mean, that's what I I really appreciate. Those people that are able to, like you said, establish themselves and both of you have established yourselves in in your careers, your respective careers and came from nothing that have made incredible lives for yourselves. And so that's one of the reasons why I have this podcast is to provide inspiration for people that I've really started with from scratch (laughs) and have, and have developed this positive mindset to become successful, but it's not easy. And both of you have had a long journey to get here. It wasn't, it wasn't like you both came out and like, I'm going to go ahead and work for, you know, as a CEO of Starbucks.
1: (laughs) But one thing I just really want to interject is it is a collaborative effort. All the success that I have in my life is based on the people that I surrounded myself when I came home. I didn't do it on my own. You know, it was definitely God first and foremost and the, the people that I had in my corner and, and having a good support system that like, like guided me in the right direction. Andrew Wynn, Alton Williams, the people at Sac State, you know, the people that really pushed me in my educational goals and connected. And Amanda Berger at Inside Garden Program. If I didn't have these people enter my life and, and, and support me, I wouldn't be where I am. So, it, you know, this notion that we're going to do it on our own, especially having the stigma of incarceration and the felony and all that. It's not going to happen you really need to surround yourself with people going the right direction when you come home and make that your support system if you want to succeed and
0: and gunner we talked about this before christian uh you weren't in on this conversation but i'm going to bring it up now is this doesn't necessarily we we understand this doesn't necessarily work like the relationship that you the friendship and the relationship that both that christian and you built gunner it's not going to be for everybody there's some people that will be in a place of pain their whole life because they must have, they, loved a lo- they lost a loved one. <clears throat> so we're not saying that this is a pie in the sky. This will solve everything. I think I really like restorative justice in the situations that it works. Um, but you have to be in a place to, to be that way. I remember somebody told me that um, somebody had uh, killed their son and they called me on the phone to let that person know that when I met the person that killed their son, that they forgave them. And when I told that person, they, they cried because they just got out of prison. But they had wait, waited so long to hear that. But I've also heard the other side. So it's I think it's we have to have respect those people that are victims that are not in that place. and then and, But what I really love about what I think is very inspirational about your story is that, is that you don't hear the stories about like the Christian and the Gunners coming together. You don't hear about that in most media outlets. You don't hear about that which I appreciate that some of the one media outlet to really took this on. And, but typically, you don't hear the negative stories because that sells more. You don't hear the positive things that have come out, like the work that both of you did to get to a place where you were able to forgive one another and to develop a friendship as well. You don't get to hear those stories as much. And that's what I really, really appreciate about, appreciate hearing your story. It's very inspirational to know that two people like yourselves can get to a place where you can turn your lives around and ha- and, and, and what happened between both of you. And then both of you forgive each other in some way. Yeah. And, 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 and then, and then, and then, and then, and then both of you go back to the community, I guess that segues into my other part of, um, can you both tell me what you're doing now? Cause both of you are very successful and very inspirational. What are both of you doing now in terms of your careers and
1: and your and project and community service in some way? Go ahead, Gunnar. Um, so I work with Project Rebound, which I have for the last five years, housing coordinator. We just got a housing grant. I work with Insight Garden Program on a very limited basis. I used to be the reentry manager. Um, so I still kind of fill in, in um, several of the prisons when we need space and do a lot of reentry entry work. Um, and then Christian and myself are, uh, you know, collaborating all the time. We're doing a, a press conference for Senator Cortezzi for SB ninety four on August twenty third. Uh, I was just down in L A. We're working on, you know, ideas of uh, changing the narrative. So that's really the big thing. Is a lot of people, and I experienced this when I went to Christian's board hearing. The DA got on my case for supporting him like i'm not the survivor i shouldn't be there he's not doing life for you know attempted of me it's for the murder of patrick and if i was there asking you know that he's remaining incarcerated the da would have grandstanded me but because i had healed and came to a place where i had forgiven him um you know i'm all of a sudden part of that adversarial system we're really trying to change the narrative and let people know that healing is a, a possibility and like you said Martin, it's not always there um, that people are ready for it, but we want to let people know they don't have to be stuck in their trauma, that healing is a possibility. And that doesn't mean you have to forgive the person that harmed you. It just means you have to process that anger and get beyond that. If you're stuck in anger for two decades, it's doing nobody harm but yourself. And my mom's a great example. My mom was adamant. She supported my decision to meet with Christian, but she's like, I will never forgive the guy who put you in the ICU. Christian came to my graduation for my uh, master's degree and and my mom and him and myself parked in the same parking structure and we're walking to golden one. And my mom was just laying into Christian about, she was 42 years old at the time of the crime, high risk pregnancy, all this stuff. And Christian just took it and was being remorseful and um, showing the human being that he is today. And, and by the time I had a stage for graduation, the three of us were crying and, and Then we went out to dinner afterwards and they were able to talk and my mom saw his humanity. And that's really what it's about is seeing the human element in each other and our shared humanity. And, you know, it doesn't mean everybody has to forgive the person that harmed them, but we want to show people that there is a pathway to healing and our system doesn't offer it. I know victim services, you know, they offer some services, but unless you have the resources to get the therapy and the treatment that you need, As a survivor, it's hard. It's hard to get that unless you have those resources. And um, now restorative justice is an option. And if somebody gets to a place where they want to sit down, and it may be they just want to ask really tough questions about the person that harmed them. Why the hell did you do this? What were you friggin' thinking, right? And express and let that anger kind of come out because the prosecution does that during the trial, not you. So that whole dynamic is taken from you. And all of a sudden, you're a tool for the prosecution. And you don't get the answers that you want. And you're left wondering and left feeling victimized all over again. And we're trying to change that and let people know that you can, um, that healing is a possibility.
2: Yeah, it's, and that's the public narrative that we're really trying to chip away at, which is this idea that it's a a shameful thing. You know, if somebody wants to heal or they accept uh, the person that, that harmed them as a human being, then somehow they don't love the person they lost. And this is a public narrative. This is a, a, a way of shaming somebody out of the healing process. And much like you said, it it's it's not actually about forgiveness. I mean, this is a beautiful side product, not for the person receiving it, for the person that has it, the person that isn't full of anger anymore, that isn't. It's but the process isn't about that part. You know, that's something that's a byproduct of it afterwards. Our intention is to show people that when people have an exchange. I mean, you could take something as simple as you invited me out to coffee and I stood you up. You go to the place, you sit there and wait for me. I don't give you a call. You know, how do you feel? You feel rejected. You feel like, and then if you were to call me and go like, Hey, why didn't you show up? And I'm like, Hey, piss off. Well, now what's more hurtful, me not showing up or not caring that, that you were hurt by the action. Well, in a divisive system, that second part is in play all the time. Your pain isn't acknowledged by the person that harmed you. That that acknowledgement isn't there. And that makes the wound that much more intense and much more visceral for the person not being acknowledged in that painful process. So when somebody owns their experience and says, look, that you didn't deserve this. And, and more importantly, I've, I realize how much, uh, like listening to you right now, I realize how much this hurts you. And I didn't consider those things, but now I am. And I feel... Awful about it, and I'm gonna change my life and hopefully help us, you know, like living in amends is the give that you can give now. And so whether they become friends or there's forgiveness, but in that exchange, something is released for both people to where they can be better people, they can live more, they can contribute to their families, they aren't all shut down emotionally, and that, that acknowledgement really changes things for people. So we aren't fighting for people to forgive people. But we are fighting for them to be free of the trauma that was was brought into their lives unjustly. so to us that's justice.
0: okay, so here's a very difficult question for both of you and it can be very brief we have a few more, we just have a few more uh, minutes left in the podcast but um, what do both of you guys enjoy doing for fun <laughs>
1: I like being on my paddleboard, uh, my kayak. I'm a certified scuba diver. I love the water in the summer, snow in the winter, um, being outside. You know, camping, hiking, a little bit of fishing. Um, my family has a beautiful cattle ranch in central Oregon. I like to be on the back of a horse, even if it is pushing a couple of hundred head of cattle. You know, it's <laughs> it's not always the best odor sometimes, but it is a lot of fun. Um, and, and honestly, the work we do today, for me, it, it really recharges my batteries. I get out of bed and get to do something that's incredibly rewarding. Um, it's great that I make a good living doing it, but I would honestly do it for free every day of the week. And so that's a huge blessing as well.
0: What about you, Christian?
1: Uh, I would say
2: primarily that what he just shared, having real connections with people, helping other people that might not be in a place where they've ever been introduced to these ideas or just seeing those transformation happen firsthand when I'm doing the work that I do as a coach it it's 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 more than just living I feel like before I wasn't even alive when I was in prison like a lot of the things that I fought for were just the most basic human principles but to be out here and interconnected with people and able to give and and to travel and and you know be a part of life is is what gives
1: me satisfaction those are the things I take deep joy in yeah, and just to put it in context, Christian just got back from his third trip to Europe. So I was on the phone with him when uh, his agent called him and said, "You're being uh, given early dismissal of, of supervision right yeah. away." Him, his wife booked him a trip to Europe, and he just got back from the third one. So he's so, getting to see so, the world.
0: So, what do you both want to be remembered for? I mean,
2: I, I know for me anyway, it's, it's that there's the, the potential for people to change, for people not to see people in a static state and to know that every day we wave, wake up, we're a different human being. So either we're stepping towards one goal or we're stepping towards another, but there's always that potential there and that that isn't about that individual. It's about being interconnected. So for me, I think that that's what I hope lingers after I'm gone is the idea that we can do great harm and we can also do great good. That We can change that and we can make uh, an amends with our life if we if we
1: make that if we make that leap. Yeah, I agree 100%. And, um, you know, when I was using drugs, I was a negative influence in the lives of many people around me, basically a wrecking ball going through life. And today, you know, I've been doing this work for a while and I see people on campus that I met initially uh, doing outreach inside prison. I supported them going to pro board. Um, I supported them in their educational journey and watching them walk the stage and get those degrees. And I always say it's really important. I don't, I can't take ownership of anybody's success, but the fact that I played a role in their positive, you know, uh, life in their in a good way is is something that's incredibly rewarding. So, I think a lot of just doing that work is is something I want to be remembered for—the fact that I was able to invest in the well-being of other people and 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 play a part in their lives that was positive.
0: Well, how would they get a hold of you guys, uh, Christian? What's the best place uh, to get a hold of your coaching services? I know you do life coaching. Um, what's the best way to for someone to get a hold of you?
2: Uh, you can just uh, type in barebonescoaching.com or you could email me at cb11 at barebones.com. <laughs> uh, and, so, uh, and both of those are my coaching platform. I focus on transforming pain into resilience. And and it's uh, I usually work with people that haven't had success with traditional therapy, but they tend to find... Uh, a happy life working with me so it's, it's gratifying work
0: yes and, and what about you Gunnar uh what about the project 90 and the work you doing
1: yeah so you can reach me at uh joshuajohnson3 at edu, which is uh california state edu, and then the work i do with insight garden program it's gunnar which is g-u-n-n-e-r at insight garden program i-n-s-i-g-h-t garden program dot org uh yeah dot org and, and yeah, those are the two organizations. Can,
0: can you just briefly just like, what is Project 90 so that people know what that is?
1: Well, it's Project Rebound. So it's um, a college support system. It actually started in 1967 by Dr. John Irwin at San Francisco State. We got a, a philanthropic grant in 2016. We expanded to nine California state universities. 2019, we got our line item in the state budget, um, which was then $3.3 million. We expanded to like 12 universities and now we're reoccurring 11.5 was our budget. And um, we're at 16, soon to be 19 of the 23 California state universities. So we support people that um, are formerly incarcerated that want to get an education.
0: That's great. Thank you so much and Gunnar's uh, Gunner's done a lot of outreach and helps people get placed and that's um, so pretty amazing work. Christian and Gunner, you've been such, a, such an honor to have you on here. I know it's taking an hour out of your both of your busy days. <laughs> um, you can catch this podcast on all major podcast platforms: Spotify, uh, Apple, Apple Play, uh, it's, and also on YouTube. The video will be there. Thank you both so much for being here. I really, really appreciate it. Please join us next time for another amazing guest. We've got some great folks coming up in a in a week or so. And thank you all. Have a great weekend. Take care. Thank you, for, thank you, everybody. Weekend. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Let's see here.